finishing up chapter 11. I've been saying that for weeks now, and today's the day. We're going we're gonna to finish it up. And we're, we're gonna, we've been talking about these, these two really dramatic public events that, that, that mark the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're in the, in the Holy Week, in, the, in that last week of events leading up to his death on the cross. And the last two events that we've studied uh, specifically are, are really why Jesus has become a marked man. I mean, he, he's, he's a marked man in Jerusalem, and, and his, his life will end in death here at the, at the end of this week. The, these two events are, are these. One is the triumphal entry. We studied this a few weeks ago where Jesus rode into town on a donkey colt making a statement, and he was receiving all of this praise and, and these declaration, these hosannas from the crowd, and they were rolling out the red carpet for him by taking off their cloaks and putting it over the road and, and grabbing leafy branches and palm branches and tall grass, anything that they could use to cover the road to, to, to honor Jesus in this red carpet treatment. And, and what they were saying was so specific to identify him as this anticipated Messiah, it made a tremendous amount of noise leading up to this week of Passover. And it expressed just what they believed, their intent with Jesus coming to town here. So it was a, it was a bold and calculated move on Jesus' part. We remember talking about that. Because this moment fulfilled Old Testament scripture. But uh, this, this moment also, it, it got the attention of every single religious person in town. And that was everybody. Because again, this is Passover. Everyone's coming from all over Israel, like two, two to three million people gathering to celebrate Passover. Everyone is religious in that town at this point in time. And Jesus, there in the triumphal entry, has gotten all of their attention, all eyes on Jesus. That was the first dramatic and public event of the Passion Week. And the second one, if that didn't get your attention, the second event surely would when he went in and cleansed the temple. So he, he goes from the Mount of Olives on this donkey colt all the way down to the temple. He sees what's going on there. He goes back to Bethany where Lazarus lives, stays there the night. He gets up the next day and he comes right back to the temple and he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to drive out all of those who are selling sacrifices or buying sacrifices, all of those who are exchanging currencies and things like that to make those purchases, none of that activity was supposed to take place in the temple. That's not what it was designed for. Jesus is furious. Now the religious leaders of, the of that time, they had authorized all of that activity. They had come up with that idea. Remember it was the Sadducees that moved all of those activities into the outer court or the court of the Gentiles in the temple there. They, they had sanctioned all of that activity. They were leading all of that activity, but it is not what God wanted. It wasn't sanctioned by God. It's not the purpose of that facility. And so Jesus goes in there. He drives them all out. What does he say? My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what this is here for, to have reverence before God, to worship him. You've made it a den of robbers. Right? He was enforcing the original purpose and the rules of the temple there. And so you can imagine then how well this went over with the religious leaders who did authorize that activity. 
who does this guy think he is? It didn't, go, it didn't go over well. So the proverbial feces has hit the fan right now, right? That's the rated G version of, to say that. Right, right. The religious, the religious regime, they've had enough. They've had enough. It's time to confront Jesus. It's time to get in his face and, and in their eyes try to make things right. And so that's where we're at. In Mark's gospel. We're going to see a series of confrontations from this point, starting in, in chapter 11, verse 27. And all the way through chapter 12, there's about six different moments we're going to study these confrontational moments. Now, I bet you, most of you out there, you're non-confrontational people. You avoid conflict like the plague, right? You can't stand conflict. You don't want to say anything or do anything. That'll make anybody upset. But when conflict is happening, you love to watch. This might be your favorite part of the entire Gospel of Mark. Because you're going to have one conflict after another. We're going to gather next Sunday, talk about another conflict. The Sunday after that, talk about another conflict. They are, they are butting heads. There is a collision taking place here at the end of chapter 11 and through chapter 12 between Jesus and the religious leaders of that time, the Sanhedrin, which we'll get into, the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and all that. They're going to question Jesus in all sorts of different ways. They're going to question his authority. They're going to question his doctrine, his theology. They're going to question what he believes about Old Testament messianic prophecy. They're going to question him about hot topics and things. They're ready to have a throwdown with Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He, he's ready. I'm your huckleberry. That's kind of his, he's like the hour has come. And he is ready to deal with them and to, and to collide with their views. And so let's tango here where we are in Mark chapter 11. You may notice um, verse 26 isn't there. That's a uh, side note. That's at, verse 26, if you went and looked it up, it was taken out centuries ago by Erasmus. But the reason it was taken out of there uh, in the earliest transcripts that we find, it doesn't exist. And really, if you did go back and look at what it says, verse 26 is more or less a repeat of verse 25. So nothing changes doctrinally or theologically when that happens, but that's why there's no verse 26. But these guys are about ready to, to confront Jesus about his authority. All right, so we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus today. So verse 27, if I can get my Bible here. I fight authority, authority always wins. Remember that song? We'll talk about that later. Oh, yeah, sorry. Verse 27 and 28 says this, and they came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you authority to do them? So here, another day at the temple, Jesus is back and this time they're waiting on him. This time they're ready. They're ready to confront him, ready to challenge him. We have the chief priests, we have the scribes, and we have the elders, all right, a.k.a. the most important people possible are there to confront Jesus. These are the big guns. These three groups make up what's called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin would have been a, the ruling council of Israel. These guys are the decision makers of the nation of Israel. There, was a, there were 70 people on this council, and they were all either chief priests scribes 
or lay elders. And so the chief priests, these guys would have been re related to the head priest, the chief priest, the chief priest. And you, like you were usually a chief priest because you were in a bloodline of chief priests, okay? These guys had like, it was their, like they saw it as their birthright to be a chief priest. And so they, they come up from a line of priests, right? And they carry out the worship in the temple. The scribes, these guys were the experts in the law, in the Torah, the, those first five books of the Old Testament that Moses gave us. And so we have the scribes, they memorized the law. They interpreted those laws to the people so that they could understand them. These guys are the PhDs. So you got the chief priests, you got the experts, and you have the elders, again, these lay elders. These people would have been from prestigious Jewish families. They were somebodies, right? They, they were the aristocrats of that society. So they have gathered together, right? All the big guns that gathered together, locking arms like Voltron here to take on Jesus, and they are confronting him. They mean business. Who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? What are his credentials? Who does he think he is? We're the decision makers here. We are the ones who authorized all of that activity that he just ended in one swift move. He just whipped all these animals out of here, yelled at everybody, quoting scripture and getting them out of here. Who does he think he is? By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Can you, you can hear this tone, right? Tone is everything. You know, we can, we can read the room here. We, we, we can't hear it, but we can read the room and know that that tone must be here. And tone is everything when you're delivering uh, information to someone, right? Uh, how you speak to your spouse. You can say the same thing in two different tones and it means something totally different, right? Did you get the, the dishwasher cleaned out today? Did you get the dishwasher cleaned out today? Right? Those, two, those mean two radically different things, right? So you've got to know this tone is not friendly. There's a very obvious tone that I think we're meant to, to pick up here. Who do you think you are? It's a, a confrontational tone. Yeah, we heard, the, we heard the hosannas when you came marching down the street. We heard what the people were saying. You're, you're this descendant of David. We know how they feel about you, and you seem to be receiving all of those declarations, all of those hosannas, and, and then here you are clearing out our, our temple? What? what who, who authorized this? We didn't authorize this. Are we not the decision makers? We, we don't remember ever telling you that this is okay to do. So what are you doing? Who are you? What makes you think you can do this? You know, these questions then, as we, as we analyze these questions, right, we... we we know that the motivation behind them is not sincere. They're not really asking, hey, could you tell us more about the authority that you have and, and how and who gave you this? Th this question is not sincere. And we do this all the time, like being a pastor, I, I'll preach a sermon, and it's often the case that maybe somebody will come uh, after the service or later in the week or shoot me an email, and they'll ask me a question about something that I taught in Scripture or something that I said about a passage of scripture and sometimes you can tell by the wording of those questions or by the tone of those questions whether or not they are sincere right sometimes people are on a genuine pursuit of truth they want to consider things a little further and then other times people are just looking for a fight <laughs> or looking for a debate 
and they, they want to either spar with you theologically or, or really they, maybe they just want to conquer you <laughs> in, the, in the debate. You can always kind of tell. I remember a long time ago, early in the days of the journey, I, we had a college group. Some of you were a part of that. And it was just, you know, different groups gather, and they, they, they kind of take on their own personalities that time. In this particular group, we loved to talk about uh, really deep theological issues, and we would come ready to, like, debate at times and, and you, know, you know, wrestle with different concepts about Scripture and, and God and things like that. And, and I remember uh, one night uh, a college student came uh, just pregnant with a question. Um, that's a weird way to phrase that now that I think about it. But you know what I'm getting at, right? He came prepared and like you could just tell something was about to happen. And he, he, he was holding it in as long as he could and he finally found an opportunity to blurt it out. Well, let me ask you this, guys. If, if God is all-powerful, hmm, let me think about that. Let me ask you this. Can, can God create a burrito that's so hot even he couldn't eat it? Because if he, if he can't do that, he's not all-powerful. But if he, if he can do that, I guess things all, all things all are not possible with God, right? <laughs> you know, that was the, like, that's, he was waiting for that moment, right? And he's not, like, he's not looking to learn anything, right? He's looking to, to debate, to win the argument. And so he's creating this argument and things. I'm like, you, you thought all day about this, didn't you? And he did. Uh, but you know, like, you can tell when someone's on a pursuit of truth. Or sometimes I think people ask those questions. This student wasn't at that time. But a lot of times people will have questions like those that they found on the Internet or, or thought all day to create. And they're really just on a pursuit of self-esteem, right, or a pursuit of victory, another win in the, or another one in the win column. They just want to conquer you. But Jesus, when he's confronted with these leaders, right, we have to understand he can see right through all of the, all of the facade, right? He knows why they're there. He knows the motivation behind those questions. No doubt, Jesus, when he interacted with people, and we see this in other places in the gospel as well, he could see through everyone supernaturally, knowing the heart and the intent of every person who ever interacted with him. Certainly that is a part of this, but I think just reading the room and common sense would tell you that they are there to trap him. They are there to trap him, and he knows it. And Jesus, who is ready for the confrontation as well, he's going to take that trap that they have brought to him, and before they realize it, they themselves are about to be in the trap. They are about to unknowingly trap themselves in this word game or, or you know, mind wrestling that they're about to do with Jesus, right? So... Does God even eat burritos? If he, if he doesn't, the question's irrelevant. Anyway, let's, let's see then what he's getting into and, and how he takes their trap and, and puts them in it. Read in, with me in verse uh, 29 through 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you uh, by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus has taken control and commandeered the trap. I'll answer your question about my authority. You want to know about my authority? Okay, I'm happy to answer your question. I just need you to answer my one question first. You answer my question, and I will answer your question. Here's my question. And his question puts them in, in between a rock and a hard place. 
It's, a geni it's genius on multiple levels. We'll talk about that. He puts them in a situation in which they have to make, make a public judgment call on John the Baptist. And, and so he knows what they feel about John the Baptist, and their views on John the Baptist are so wildly unpopular that they would, they would really lose this in a hurry if they condemned John the Baptist. So his question, was the, John, was the baptism of John from heaven or man? We remember earlier in this gospel, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the one, the one whom Old Testament prophecy said would come before the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for the Messiah. He proclaimed himself as this person, identified himself as this person, and he identified the Messiah whom this person was purposely put there from all of eternity to identify. And John identified himself as that person and identified uh, Jesus as this Messiah. And everyone believed that it was valid. They believed that John was a bona fide prophet of God. These guys knew this. All of Israel had practically been baptized through his ministry. And Jesus just put them in between a rock and a hard place. Knowing what they believe about John. Was the baptism of John from heaven or man? Answer me. Tell me. Now, this is the genius of that question, right? Jesus, with his question, is answering their question already. Because John the Baptist and Jesus, they're, they're, again, they're a package deal. If you recognize the authority of one, you have, uh, you have effectively recognized the authority of the other. And so he, Jesus knows this, and, and it tells them, make a judgment call on John the Baptist. Now, we know the authority of Christ is, is, is so far beyond this, but as far as human terms go and what they can understand at this point in time, right, he's putting them in a situation in which they have to make a judgment call. Now, the authority of Jesus, right, after his baptism, God spoke from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At, a, at the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We identify the authority of Jesus all over Scripture. But this question forces them to either validate the authority of John, this known prophet, well-received prophet of God, or, or invalidate his entire ministry. That's why this question is so, so perfect. It, functionally, this is what he's doing to these guys. You're asking me about my authority? I'll give you a chance to reject my authority. Why don't you tell me about my authority? You tell me if I have the authority to, to do these things. You tell me who gave me this authority. Was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? Answer me. You see how his question answers their question and puts them in the trap all at the same time? Of all the people, I wouldn't want to debate. I would not want to debate Jesus. Let's continue in 31 through 32. Here's what they do. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, and for, all, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they have this opportunity to reject Jesus' authority openly. Jesus presents it to them. They go, they go into a team huddle, 
right? They go into the, the I, I love this part. You know, they're ready to confront. They've been, wait, they've been waiting on Jesus. He gets there. They get this opportunity. And Jesus asks them a question. They're like, hang on just a second. <laughs> Team huddle. What are we going to say? What are we going to do here? Right? Because they, they, they're playing games right now. They're there to trap Jesus, not have a sincere conversation. They understood why they were there. They understood how they felt about John the Baptist. And they just wanted to trap Jesus. So rather then just answer the question, they're going to they're gonna say, uh, they're going to consider their options. If we say from heaven, well, then he's going to ask us why we rejected John the Baptist, right? And, right, it, Jesus and John the Baptist are this package deal. If we say from man, and did you notice how Mark fills in the blanks for us there? That's not what they were saying. This is, how, this is the commentary Mark adds. They were afraid of the people that they held. John really was a prophet. And so they recognize, man, we are in the, uh, we, we, we have a wildly unpopular opinion about John the Baptist. We can't just blurt that out. Man, we're going to, we're in between a rock and a hard place here. We're going to lose. If we say yes, we're going to lose. If we say no, we're going to lose. We don't want to validate Jesus. We don't want to validate John, but we don't want to invalidate John because we're afraid people are going to hate us. So what are they going to say? How are they going to answer this if they can't say yes and they can't say no? What, what are they going to say? Or they can't say from heaven they can't say from man. Here's what they say in verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We do not know. I don't know. You ever notice how whenever you're having an in-depth conversation with someone, or especially a confrontational conversation with someone, if there's ever a point in which they don't want to answer the question, what answer do they go to? I don't know. It's such a convenient answer. I don't want to say, so I'm going to lie. I don't know. Now, I feel like Jesus really could have escalated things right here at this moment. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. Here's the Sanhedrin. These are the decision makers. These are the guys that are supposed to know the will of God and, and the purposes of God. I just asked them about John the Baptist who has baptized seemingly all of Israel with a baptism of repentance. I asked them what their opinion on was, was on John the Baptist, and they say, we don't know. How about that? Like he, I feel like Jesus could have really escalated and put these guys in a really bad place, but that's not his style. He, he, he was willing to play their game long enough to beat them at their own game. But he said, essentially, okay, I win. You want to play a game? I'll, I'll beat you at your game. And since you won't answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question either. They didn't want to submit to the authority of Jesus. So when we're talking about the authority of Jesus, and we want to think about this passage in a, in a very meaningful way, in a way that would invite conviction into our life, I think here's how we do it. How do you think of the authority of Jesus? How much does the authority of Jesus matter to you? What sort of weight does it carry when you consider it? When you consider the authority of Jesus, is it something that you, you consciously submit to? We don't like to submit to anything. But do you consider Jesus your king? You submit to that authority? How would you answer if you were confronted with that? Would you say, yes, I buy into the authority of Jesus. I'm submitting my life to the authority of Jesus. Would you say, no, I am not 
Jesus is not my authority. He is not even a authority. Or would you say, I don't know? And if you said, I don't know, what would that actually mean? Is it because you're considering and you're, you're pursuing truth with a sincere heart? Or is it because you just don't want to say no? Why, why is that? You know, I, I think when we are confronted with the authority of Jesus, our mind likes to go into a little team huddle, just like those guys did. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they're, they're having a little team huddle. When you're, when you're confronted with the authority of Jesus, I think people often go into a little mind huddle. Well, let me consider how I would answer that, and that's what I want you to do today. Consider how I would answer that. Would I, would I come out the gate with a hard yes? Yes! Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He is my King. And of course, when we say that, when we say that we are submitting to the rule of Christ, logically it's saying I'm, I'm in a life that's conforming to his will. I'm, I'm adhering to biblical morality. I'm pursuing his righteousness as explained to me in the pages of scripture and his word, right? It's a big commitment. Saying yes to that question is a powerful thing, a very meaningful thing, a life-altering decision to say that you view Jesus as your king. And so... Th- don't enter into that yes lightly. Option B, if you don't say yes, I think a lot of people go towards that. Yeah, they, they say I don't know, but, you know, but which I don't know are they saying? I bet you even if we, if we really got into the face of every churchgoer, even in our area, do you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you submit to his authority? Do you live under his rule? I think a lot of people would give a soft yes to that. Yeah, yeah, right. A quiet yes, or that kind of I don't know. Because I think a lot of people would say that because you know it's it's it could be possible that they're they're just they're young in their faith, they're insecure in what they believe, and they're just not well informed maybe of God's word, and so they're a little unsure of themselves and who Jesus is, who God is. I think a lot of times people want to give a soft yes if, they, if confronted with that question because they, they feel this pull. They feel this pull, such a strong pull to the ways of the world, and, and they, don't, they don't know if they have the strength to fight off the urge of buying into worldly morality. That is a strong pull that every single one of you out there deal with on a daily basis, right? If you love the truth of the gospel and logically want to buy into biblical morality and want to live that lifestyle out, it's really hard because you have to say no to the authorities of this world because they are not consistent with it. You have to say no to submitting to this call to worldly morality, which is all over the place. I think a lot of times people, they can't deny the hope that lies within the gospel But they're just so afraid of how the world's going to treat them if they buy into biblical morality. They're fearful. People are going to hate me. People are going to say I'm hateful. If I love like the Bible tells me to love and call sin as, as how the Bible describes it as sin, people will say I am being hateful and cruel and mean. They will label me as that. And I'm afraid of that. I don't want to be viewed like that. And so because of that constant pull, that constant fear, our yes to the lordship of Jesus Christ turns into a really soft yes, or I don't know, maybe. 
Because, let's face it, this, this world isn't becoming any kinder when it comes to Christianity. Right? The world is becoming more and more hostile. I think there was a season within American, within American culture in which, you know, we're a Christian nation. How, people that say that today, I'm like, what nation are you living in? Christian nation? How so? Describe that to me. I want to believe that's true. I wish that were true. But boy, I'm just not really seeing that as true right now. I'm having a hard time. This, this culture seems pretty hostile towards what I believe. There's a lot of fear-mongering going on towards people who have biblical beliefs. And so I think a lot of times when people say, I don't know, they're trying to exist in this neutral ground that's not really there. They want to believe there's some neutrality here. I don't want to be mean and reject Jesus, but I don't want to be mean and reject the world. And so I'm right here on the fence in an area that doesn't really exist. Because when you say I don't know in that way, functionally it is a no, right? Just like Jesus saw through that we don't know that the scribes and chief priests and elders had, that I don't know wasn't really an I don't know. That was a I don't want to say no. Well, when we just don't want to say no, it's because we're gravitating towards a really hard no. I think about those, those lyrics, I fight authority and authority always wins. You know, I, I jokingly sang that earlier on purpose. Because when I think about that, you know, it's so true. When we fight authority, authority really does always win. If we say no to the authorities in this world, they will be cruel to us. If you say no to, to worldly morality, this world will not accept you. It will not feel like home. You'll feel like you don't belong here. When you live in this world and say no to these authorities, authorities always win, right? They're just going to make you feel cruddy about it. But if you say no to the authority of Christ, you will forfeit an eternal kingdom free from, from sin. You'll forfeit redemption. Saying no to Christ is, is forfeiting restoration and eternal peace. Jesus, here's the magnificence of Christ. He came into a world that rejected him and rejected his authority. And he used, this is how great his authority is. He used their rejection of him to validate and prove his own authority and how great it truly was. It proved to be greater than all authorities. Because their rejection of him caused them to kill him. But here's the truth of Jesus. He can lay his life down and take it up again. He has the authority to do that. He said that before they killed him. And then he did it. He used their intent, their trap to kill him. And they, they were in the trap before they even realized it. And he conquered them through his life, death, and resurrection. Here's the last thing Jesus said after his resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I encourage you, when you say yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are saying yes to biblical morality.
You are saying yes to taking his glory and his gospel into this world and baptizing people in it, in the proclamation of the gospel. So I want to encourage you, say yes to that. Think of how you would answer that question. Evaluate where you are on the yes or no or I don't know and what kind of I don't know you're even saying. And I would press you a little bit in that. Gravitate and take a step towards a direction because there is no neutral ground. Say yes to Christ today and we're going to remember him in this time of communion as we always do. Let's pray together and we'll continue our worship. Lord, again, we're just so grateful to be in this gospel of Mark and all of these just life-changing moments. Lord, we, we're just going one paragraph at a time so that we can truly just saturate ourselves in, in your truth and truly marinate and consider, make educated decisions, make thoughtful decisions, meaningful decisions. Lord, it's so tempting to be wishy-washy. It's so tempting to want to exist in a in a neutrality that's not really there. But Lord, functionally with our words and actions, we're making choices. Help us to be conscious of those. And Lord, by your grace, through your spirit, may we say yes to your lordship, your reign, your kingdom. And in that, Lord, that you would sustain us and allow us to persevere through this world that rejects us like they rejected you, that calls us hateful and cruel, just like they called you hateful and cruel and wrong. And Lord, that we would endure through a world that we don't belong on our way to an eternal kingdom which will live forever and always belong because of you. Lord, help us to consider these things uh, all to your glory today. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.